Welcome to the Sheridan Sport Backpage podcast, where we hear from influential and inspiring figures from across the business of sport. On series one so far, we've been fortunate to have heard from women and men from right across the sports industry, from CEOs to business leaders, marketeers, talent agents, and elite athletes. Today, we have a special two-part episode as our head of sport, Andrew Nixon and I, are joined by not just a former professional athlete and Olympic and world champion, but without doubt, one of the most decorated athletes in the history of British sport. Christina Hurgu needs no introduction, but is perhaps best known for becoming the first British woman to win 400 meters Olympic gold at the Beijing Olympics in 2008. She went on to win silver in London four years later in 2012, and was also crowned world champion twice and Commonwealth champion too. And on top of that, she won six world championship medals and two Olympic medals in the 4x400m relay. There are so many career highlights to choose from. One standout is the fact that she holds the record with Usain Bolt and Marlene Otte for medalling in most successive global championships, nine between the 2005 World Championships and the Rio 2016 Olympics. Christine is an incredible podcast guest because she is much, much more than just a great champion. She speaks openly and honestly about the highs and lows of her career, about inspiring the next generation of track and field athletes, and about how she dealt with the many setbacks in her career, most notably when she was suspended for missing three out of competition drugs tests, a ban that was ultimately overturned. Since retiring in 2018, she has graduated with a law degree and she talks to us about what sparked her interest in the law and what her plans for the future are. We're very lucky to have had Christine share her thoughts with us today, not just on her incredible career on the track, but also about sport and the challenges facing sport, including in the build-up to next summer's Tokyo Olympics. Here's our chat with Christina Hurugu. I hope you enjoy it. Firstly, Christine, uh, thank you for uh, joining us on the Backpage podcast. We've been fortunate to have had on the pod some of the most influential sports business leaders, but this is the first time we've had a bona fide sporting superstar on. So it's a real honour, a real privilege for Johnny and I to have this opportunity to spend some time speaking with you. Um, and indeed, without embarrassing you too much, first up, I just wanted to reel off uh, some of your uh, achievements. And I only do this because listeners will be well aware of your success as an athlete, your fame as an athlete, but they may not be fully cognizant of quite how decorated you are. And as you know, Christine, I'm a massive athletics fan. I've obviously followed your career over the years, and even I wasn't aware of quite how many medals you had accumulated over the years. Um, you obviously became an Olympic champion in Beijing in 2008, and you were a silver medalist in London 2012. And I want to come back to 2012 separately because obviously of your your connection to the borough of Newham uh, you were a double world champion 2007 and 2013 you won six world uh, championship medals in the 4x4 another two bronze Olympic medals in the 4x4 in Beijing and Rio you're the first uh, British female to win two uh, world titles the first British female to win three global titles and indeed, your bronze in Beijing made you only the second British track and field athlete after the great Steve Backley to win medals at three successive Olympic Games. And of course, threaded into all of that is your Commonwealth gold in uh, Melbourne in 2006 
and numerous uh, age group uh, and senior world and European uh, indoor medals. Um, Christine, that really is um, quite a CV. It's pretty mind-boggling in many ways. And I suppose the first question should really be, where the hell do you keep all those medals? I mean, presumably you have a pretty enormous trophy cabinet. Um, but actually what I'd quite like to start with is, is where it all started. You obviously, as I alluded to, grew up in Stratford. Uh, you're a sporty kid, you're an athletic kid. But we're really curious to know how that led to becoming an Olympic champion, how you got into athletics, because I think you came into it a little bit down the track because you were a netball player to start with. But it'd be great to hear a little bit about that early, early journey, if you will. Okay, so um, yeah, nice to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's really quite uh, mind-boggling for myself to, to hear my CV read in such a way. When I talk about myself, it's just like, oh, I just run, you know, one four hundred, and I have a couple of Olympic medals and double world champs, but I actually forget all the other bits in between. So it's kind of helpful to have that. that yeah. um, I think growing up for me, um, organized sports, as it were, is kind of pro probably the way we know sport is, as it is now, was something that never really featured in my mind um, at all. I, I think I, I, was, I was quite fortunate that I had an older brother, so we could be outside playing, and I always had someone else that would look after me. So um, we got up to all the things that I suppose kids will get up to nowadays, um, just... We were always out every night playing games. I mean, we weren't getting into trouble. We were just messing around um, and always everything my brother did. So if he played football, I would play football. Um, you know, if he was on a bike, I was on a bike. If he had a skateboard, I was on a skateboard. Yeah. So it was quite nice in that um, I never really saw myself as, as a girl or his little sister. I was just somebody that was able to compete with their big brother. And so that was kind of my life growing up. I knew I enjoyed being active, but it wasn't really sport per se I didn't really get involved in any organized sport until I, I think until I reached my teens and I started playing netball at um, secondary school but I, I knew that I loved being active I knew that I enjoyed running around and I loved climbing and um, just generally being competitive but I think at that young age it wasn't sport I never really saw myself as being a, an athlete or a pursuing any kind of sporting career it never really crossed my mind um, from the time we were young, we were always told that, you know, we were going to go to school and do well at school and go to university and do well at university and get a good job. So sport was just yeah. something we did in our spare time. It really wasn't anything that was, um, you know, job worthy as, as it's seen now. So uh, I think that's probably the big difference between, um, I say, myself and many other athletes. I never really grew up ever thinking I could be Olympic champion. It was never anything on my radar or... I don't think I didn't even follow track when I was younger. I didn't really follow any sports when I was younger. I was too busy um, was it playing outside. We never really watched much TV anyway growing up. We were always playing outside. So even when I started competing at the late age of 20 <laughs> or I joined a team, it was, it was really, um, I was seeing all these people and I had to be told like who they were. And I felt so embarrassed because I didn't really know who half the team was. Um, because I never really grew up watching them. But I, you know, I learned, I learned quickly. I figured out who they were <laughs> after a couple of months or so. Did, did you give serious consideration to a career in netball? Was that something that you were genuinely targeting through your younger years? 
Um, I just knew that at the age of about 13, 14, I knew that I wanted to play netball for England. That, that was, that was a, a fact that was set in concrete. I remember yeah. I, was in, I was in my school library. I was always in the library because I always had so much homework to do. Um, um, but I was, I was in a library and I, I was a bit of a boffing actually. <laughs> so you were, quite, you, were quite, you were quite studious then. <laughs> yeah, I was a nerd. <laughs> but the, the good thing was because I was, I was nerdy, but I, always, I also did loads of sports. So it kind of balanced yeah. out. I wasn't like ostracized <laughs> because I was a, so I I was a corner because I did sports. Yeah, but, um, so I was in the library and I got out a book um, on netball, as you do. And I just remember seeing the England team and just sitting there thinking, you know, one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play for England. I, I, that's what I want to do. So that's probably as far as my sporting aspirations went at that age. Um, um, it wasn't anything I saw seriously. I think, remember, sport in, in our household was always something that you did as a hobby. It wasn't yeah. anything to replace academics or to... Um, to even rival academics in terms of skill and level. That wasn't something that was um, drummed into our heads. In our heads was always, we, you know, we had to go to school and we had to do well at school and get good grades and, you know, come top of the class, all those kind of things. So I think I would, it was just me just fulfilling a, 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 a dream, a hobby of mine um, in playing netball. Um, but when I did make it to England, um, I was really impressed because I, I, I saw at that time, women, you know, women who were um, not just netball players, but some were doctors, a couple, I think one was an engineer, um, yeah. they were full-time mothers. So for me, it might, my, my formative years in sport, I was seeing athletes who were playing, you know, really intense, high-level sport, but were also doing something else. So that's what Amazing. I carried with me when I went into track and field. It wasn't, you know, um, even I was still studying when I was uh, doing athletics, when I started athletics, it was never in my mind that I was going to become a full-time athlete because I'd been in netball and watched women do all these other amazing things. So for me, you could do both. You could have both worlds. Being a full-time athlete was never something that I thought um, was a reality. I, I, you know, I grew up seeing women do other different things. So um, it was only until uh, I think 2000, I think when I graduated from uni in 2005, and then I realized I didn't have a job. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, you know, I've done my degree. I've got the hard bit out of the way. Um, at the same time, we had the Commonwealth Games in 2006, which was in March, the um, Australian season which only gave us like October to March to train, which is not enough time. That's like preparing for an indoor season. And I remember saying, well, you know, I haven't got a job. I haven't, you know, I've got my degree, but I don't really know what I'm going to do with it. So let me just give myself a chance to just train, uh, you know, see how far I can go as an elite athlete for six months. And if it works, I mean, my plan at that time was to win, Olymp um, win Commonwealth gold. And then I said, if it was, Which you did. Which you did. Which I did, yeah. But I actually, the <laughs> thing is, I actually planned it because, um, not planned it, but I, I needed some kind of redemption. Um, 2005 was the World Champs in Helsinki. I don't know if you remember the washout. And yeah, um, yeah I, I didn't run too well. I remember when I finished that race, um, 
I was so angry with myself. I was so angry because I thought there's, there's nothing wrong with you. You ran really, really well the year before in 2004, the Olympics, I ran 50.5. Um, you know, I kind of had like a four second PB. And, and I said, how, 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 how is it you go to a championship and you just bail out for no reason? There was no reason other than I was just scared. And I, I can admit that. I had to admit that to myself that, you know, I was, I was scared and I, I, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. So after that championship, I told myself that this is, this is the last time you will go to a championship and not make a final. You will, every championship yeah. you go to, you have to make a final, unless you're sick or you're injured or something, something happens. But there's no way you can go into a championship being completely fit, having trained, having prepared. There's no way you can do all those things and then just not make a, not make a final. Yeah. It, doesn't make sense. So I think from that moment, um, I started preparing for the uh, Commonwealth Games. And then I realized I've got six months to really be a professional athlete and to make this work, to win Commonwealth gold. Um, I think at that time, um, the Commonwealth was, was very, very strong. I know we had loads of... Yeah, it was a proper field, wasn't it? I it mean, was a proper because... field. Yeah, I remember now. So even when I think back now, I, I'm, I'm astounded at how bold I was. But sometimes you have to, and I'm glad I did that because that really set my mind every day from that day that I decided I was going to do that. Like we, we, had a, we had a small group of us, five of us. Um, we all were planning to go to the Commonwealth Games in March. So the five of us, I think it was one quarter miler, um, one uh, sprint hurdler, um, Julie, Julie Pratt now. She's, I mean, her name is not Pratt anymore, but Julie Pratt, Simeon Williamson, Andy Turner. Um, so those, we were the kind of the main... And oh, Sarah Claxton. She was the main core, and we were all planning to go to the to the Com Games. So, um, the, yeah, I just I just set my mind to that, and that's just that kind of um, that was my job for the next six months. And I thought, well, after the Commonwealth Games, I'll figure out what happens. <laughs> I'll figure yeah. it out, you know. Um, but a lot of the time, it was really just me making a um, almost. Uh, it was never, there were never really kind of long-term visions. It's just some, an idea that I'll think, I'll think up and then I'll jump on it and work really, really hard until I find myself another idea to jump on. So that's kind of how I proceeded in my career. It was loads of different, different, different goals as opposed to, you know, a five-year goal or four-year goal, I'm going to win Olympics. It was just very, very minute because I was also still very, very new in the sport. I didn't quite know what I could do and, and, and how I could how I could train. So it was. You must. You must. You must have felt when you. You must have felt when you won in Melbourne that you belonged at that level. Obviously, you break it down and you, you know, you do it by way of a, a process, almost stage by stage. But after you won in Melbourne, you must have thought, my goodness, I I belong at this on this stage. Definitely, definitely. One side, I, I I would I won. I thought it worked. It worked that I could set myself a plan. I'd you know, it was almost very, very forensic. It was six months, but I think sometimes that's the best way to work. Just up the intensity for yeah. a short amount of time and then you have complete focus. Sometimes when the season's too long, you get a bit lost in the middle, you lose focus, you kind of get a bit relaxed. But I think the six months hit was perfect. We got, we kind of did our winter training. Then after winter, we went straight into indoors. And after that, we went straight on the plane to Melbourne. And then that yeah. was the season. So it works really, really well for me because there was no time to, to, um, to kind of get lost in your thoughts and stuff. So when I did win in Melbourne, 
um, I just thought, well, this is me. This I don't have to. <laughs> this is my job now. This is this is what I I think I can go. And it's almost like a, a sense of let me just uh, let me just see how far I can run with this before you know before I start like running rubbish. Because <laughs> you never I mean, quite. Yeah. I think because I, I was so new to the sport, it was almost like um, I didn't quite believe or understand the talent that I had. My coach would always tell me, Chris, you know, you're like, he would say, Chris, you're good, you're good, you're good. Like he was always, literally always trying to pick me up every day because I'd always have some kind of meltdown. <laughs> but it was pretty much him that dragged me, <laughs> dragged me through the season, dragged me through the career because most of the time you don't really ever think you're that good. You think that yeah. you know, I'm okay to get through this race and maybe get through this season, but next year they're going to be faster and they're going to be stronger and they're gonna you know they're gonna understand how i operate so they're gonna they're gonna be quicker and so it was a constant um every season it was a constant him trying to <laughs> pull me up <laughs> to get me to um to get me to believe but i don't think i ever really truly believed until i probably retired <laughs> it's interesting because obviously you know the year before winning the commonwealth mm-hmm. gold you were at university you fast forward you know, less than 12 months and you're competing in Melbourne and obviously the Commonwealth Games are huge in Australia. You were competing at the famous MCG, the Melbourne Cricket Ground, yeah, which holds, yeah. holds about 100,000 people. I mean, what a, mm-hmm. what, a, what a transformative 12 months that must have been. I suppose you must have thought, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, it's, it's weird. I, um, as I said, because I'm, I, I think the way I cope with things is to keep things very small. I'm, I'm a very simple person. I like bite-sized pieces. So I never made it any bigger than it was. I know going into the yeah. Commonwealth Games, um, we had a handful of um, really good athletes. Um, but the star of the show was um, Tanique Williams-Darling. I don't know if you remember here. She was a reigning world champion and the reigning Olympic champion. Um, and I remember when we were going into the games and we were training. Um, so we were training in Gold Coast um, before we headed out to um, Melbourne. And I remember yeah. reading the paper at breakfast. I don't know how I stumbled on it, but I, I found this article where Tanique Williams was saying that she was coming to, to Melbourne to, um, to take her title. The Commonwealth title is the only one she hasn't, she hasn't got. And I fought the cheek. <laughs> I mean, you can say you're going to have a title, but like I'm working for this title just as much as you are. And just to think that somebody could be that um, bullshit to think that they can just walk up and, and help themselves to, to a title that we all want. You know, it's not just you that wants that. We want it. I want it. I've been working hard for it. And that really kind of, um, um, I suppose that um, it really did, exposed me to the real challenge that I'd set myself up for. And I remember at that time I was thinking, do you really know what you're up against? <laughs> this is not some, you know, novice athlete who, you know, yeah. is turning up to, to take part. She's actually coming to win. But I remember at moments like that, you can either look your goal in the face as actually, this is a bit too difficult for me. <laughs> I'm going to bail out because, you know, maybe I overestimated my talent. You say that, or you can, you can say, well, you know, bring it on. And that's, you know, I'm happy that I decided to, to go down the other route and just say, well, if she wants it, she's going to have to fight me for it. I'm not going to, you know, make it easy for her. Um, 
and and that's kind of the route I decided but I rem- yeah I remember that I remember that very very well just sitting there thinking well I can I've got two options here I can sit back and say oh sorry miss take your title <laughs> or I could um, really say well you know I've been working just as hard as you have been for the last how many months and um and that's the thing you can always tell the kind of competitors you're dealing with by what they say leading into the championship you always know yeah. you always know and and I'm happy that I read the article I'm happy that I read that she thought that we were nothing to her so she could just walk up and, and take it I was happy I read that because then I had a measure of the person I'll be dealing with and I knew that you know she almost showed her hand too early <laughs> because it definitely rolled me up and um so yeah that's a, a very kind of a good lesson I was able to take away from 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 Melbourne and um yeah, I don't know. It's weird. I wasn't too sure. I mean, obviously, after Melbourne, everything kind of went downhill after that. I mean, I had a <laughs> crazy, crazy... I mean, it's crazy. When I look back on it, so much happened in, like, the first four or five years yeah. of my career. And I just look back and I think, I'm, I don't know how many years I aged in that time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was... <laughs> it's, I mean, we'll maybe... We'll maybe you know, come on to, because obviously you've talked a bit about, you've talked a bit about that mindset. Mm. Um, and I know Johnny's got a couple of questions on that, which we'll get on to. And, and, you know, you've identified or you've sort of touched upon some of the, the setbacks that followed, um, followed Melbourne. It'd be good to talk about that as well. But I just wanted yeah. to just quickly ask you this, because obviously it's really interesting hearing about how you broke down your career. Almost it sounds like you were, you were going through a, a process. It was kind of stage by stage. But now you've retired, how do you reflect on your career as a whole? I mean, is it now easy to think of it in, as that kind of, that collective, you know, decades worth of, of achievement, decade and more worth of achievement? Um, or, or do you still think about, think about it in that kind of um, isolated series of events? Because it was almost, you, you almost looked slightly embarrassed when I was reeling off those medals. And in fact, you were looking at me thinking, I don't even remember that one. Um, so I'm just curious, <laughs> curious to know how you reflect on that, that extraordinary career. Now, you, yeah. now you're outside the other side of it. That's a really good question. It is a really, really good question. And it's one that I don't think I have a satisfactory answer for. Um, it's, I don't know. I suppose I look at my, uh, I think when I look back on track, I just look back on like a block of 15 years worth of work. Yeah. To start dissecting it too much, I think, I don't know if I'm kind of ready for that just yet. I mean, I kind of dissect little bits of it, but um, it's really, I don't really know how I look back on it. I think it's a lot kind of look at the isolated championships because um, that's how I remember things better. Like when, I remember I was talking to one of my brothers the other day because I'm one of eight kids and eight, I'm the second oldest. Wow. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm watching them all grow up. And so if I see my, one of my brothers, like say 26 or something or 23 or 24, I try to remember what it was like being, being at that age. And yeah. I only can remember it if I can remember the championship. <laughs> really? When I think of the championship, oh yeah, I'm never remember exactly what happened that year. But I just can't remember oh, that was my sad, age that was and isolation. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Then I remember what happened and I can pick, I can kind of walk backwards. But that, that was, that was kind of woven into every part of my being for 15 years. So it's hard to know which bit to dissect and how to dissect it because 
everything was everything was track everything every decision i made in life was 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 my sport um yeah so i think the best way for me to look at it is to kind of bring out each championship and each um because that's how we that's how i that's how we well that's how i lived i lived from championship to championship you're always planning for the next even if you did very well one season you're getting ready for the next season and the next and the next i don't think i really had a chance to enjoy it maybe I did my sport in the wrong time. <laughs> Maybe if I was doing it now, I might I might have more scope for enjoyment. But back then, it was just work. It was just work, and you were you were trying to do as best as you can to kind of you know plan for later. If you get what I mean, you're trying to make the most of all the opportunities you had. And for me, my job was to be an athlete, and I just had to do that um, as best as I could. That's kind of that's the only um, I say it's the only um, tool I had in the tool toolbox that was me yeah. go at it hard there's no ifs no buts so you just do the work you go home rest and you go again the next day I think I am happy to see that athletes are changing that um that kind of language around track I mean I understand that there's there's um you know there's hard work to be done but I think what I'm hearing a lot more of now is that people are talking about a balance you know yeah. so yeah. balance means that you're constantly evaluating and weighing up um different aspects i think that's something that i probably never did i just went health forever <laughs> down one route i mean the thing is it, it worked though it worked so i'm always at this weird way where i do look back on my career and i don't really want to um be too hard on myself in terms of oh i should have done this this way and i should have done this that way because it worked i took quite a punt in doing it that way yeah. but i was able to get what i wanted out of it so it's it's hard to know how to look back and how to um, package the career as such. Um, I don't want to um, look back on it through eyes of today because that wouldn't be right. And I think that would do myself a disservice for the work that I've done. Um, but I, you know, I did approach it seriously. I did approach my, my job very, very seriously. And I think I wanted to make sure that um, I didn't leave any stone unturned and I gave myself as much chance as possible to do well um i think it was because of i think i mentioned the 2005 world championships where well, i made a promise to myself that this is you know this is not going to happen again you're not going to yeah. go to a championship and just fall through you know for me that's completely <laughs> nonsensical and i think that's probably what kept driving me to keep to keep staying on top of myself yeah it's really interesting what you're saying christina boy your mindset and your mental approach at the very beginning of your career and how that sort of evolved and changed as you became more experienced and more successful as well because one of the things that you were always known for and you continue to be known for is that that ability to to raise your game in in the pressure moments at the major championships and that's a that is quite a rare skill even with the very best elite athletes that that in the really pressure environment moments that's when your a game comes out and that was something that that you know you were always known for i suppose it'd be good to 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 get your views on what was it about your mindset or your mental approach to major championships that that maybe set you apart from from the rest of the field if if, if there was something you think that, that you had from a from a mental perspective 
Yeah, that's a good question. Is one I get asked a lot, <laughs> and I understand it because sometimes um, that's what I know I could I could rely on. I could rely on myself to not fall to when I when I needed to. But I think that 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 came from um, that started in the early part of my career. I think one of my most important medals that I won. I mean, Olympics, I know world champs, I know it's there, but they don't feature. One of the most important medals I won was um, European Juniors bronze <laughs> in, I think, 2000 and, was it 2002, 2001? Maybe 2003, maybe 2000. I can't remember. I should know this. But <laughs> anyway, I should know. I'm sure somebody will come and tell me. Um, but that was the first medal I won in a British kit. And the reason that medal was so important was because... Um, I was selected to compete because someone else couldn't make the team. So I literally just snuck in through the back door because I think somebody was injured and somebody had to be removed and I was taking a place of someone else. So I really wasn't supposed to be there. So even just being there, I felt like I was some kind of fraud. <laughs> Do you know, you kind of go through the list to find somebody that can, can fit. So I didn't really feel like I was supposed to be there. It's just like I was there by default. So, um, classic, classic imposter syndrome. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, and I was there, but, um, I, and I was so much slower than, um, I mean, they really went down the list. <laughs> they really went down the list to find me. And I was a good, maybe two seconds out from the goals that would have typically run. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I did go down the list, as I said. And um, so I was there, not quite feeling that I should be there, but I was happy to be there. I just thought, you know, I've got my British, I was so excited to, to be picked. I never knew I, I was ever would have been good enough. And, um, but I, I turned up and um, I ran the first round. I was scared as anything. I ran the first round and I think I managed to sneak into the final um, fastest loser with yeah. my, my time. I think I ran like 54 seconds, uh, squeezing fastest loser in the final. And I got um, lane, lane one. And um, so uh, ahead of me were girls. I remember there was an Irish girl who I've actually kept in uh, good touch with all this time. She's actually a doctor now, Joanne Cuddy. Have you heard of her? She's oh, yeah, wearing the same. The name, yeah. yeah. So um, she was one of the leading 400 meter runners at the time. I think she was a good two seconds. She was very, very tall, very, very leggy. Um, so she was at least two seconds ahead. I think someone else from someone other. I mean, basically, I was the slowest. <laughs> I was the slowest. But um, I remember going into that final in lane one, I, you know, I really didn't care. Times didn't matter to me. It didn't really matter what everybody else had run. I still, I still bet on myself to go and run well, you know, and I still had confidence to go out there and try. I remember the co my coach at the time said, Chris, you know what, what do you have to lose? What do you have to yeah. lose? What are you going to, what are you going to do by telling yourself that you're not going to make it? You tell yourself you can make it. Why not everybody else's? And that's the attitude yeah, yeah. I, I went into the races. And I came back with a bronze medal, even though the girls were so much quicker than I was. Um, I don't know whether they blew a gasket in the, in the final. I didn't run particularly that fast. I think I, 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 I was uh, two, uh, like a, hun a hundred quicker <laughs> than, I'd, than my PB. So I really didn't make any marginal improvement. Yeah. But... It was more for me a, a battle of the mind. That was really why I was happy about that race because I really did believe that I deserved to be there, even though I came in not believing that I did. But once I was given an opportunity to run in a final, even from lane one, I thought, well, you know, you take you take a hit on yourself and you try and see what you can you can you've achieve. Got a 
you got a bronze from lane one. Yes, I got a bronze from lane one. Exactly. Wow. And nobody that was possible. Nobody <laughs> exactly. Nobody saw it coming. But and I think that's from at that point I I I, I learned to just um, just believe in yourself. If you, you you have to give yourself a chance to work. You have to give yourself yeah. an opportunity. And also opportunities don't come all the time. Just say uh, I've decided to tell myself, oh, you know, you're in lane one, you're not gonna run well, just yeah. You know, just 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 finish the race. Doesn't matter where you finish. If I had gone, I would have lost a really good opportunity. So, um, yeah, I came home a bronze medalist, um, which was something I was really proud about. And I think that's probably where it started coming from. I realised that at that moment, I wasn't the, the fastest 400 meter runner, and I wasn't the fastest 400 meter runner for a long time after that. But you have opportunities, and for me, it was really not about wasting opportunities. I think growing up. Um, even when I was playing netball, I just needed you. Just I just needed someone to leave the door open a crack. That's all. Just yeah, leave yeah. it open a crack. I'm not saying you have to, you know, have it wide open and usher me in. I just need a small opportunity, and that's something that I, I think, evolved with me as I was growing up. But same thing happened in netball. You just need, as I said, a small opportunity in netball. A lot of my um, kind of next steps or my progressions were because somebody kind of just gave me a chance or Chris, come and try this. Chris, come and do this. It's a team having trials or something, something, something. That's kind of how I just navigated my way across. It wasn't because I thought I was amazing. It was really just, just taking a chance on all these little opportunities that came along. Um, yeah. Can I just ask one additional question to the question Johnny had asked about mindset? And it's quite a random one and it may not be possible to answer it, but I'm, I'm always curious to, to, to know or better understand what goes through the mind of an athlete when you're lining up on the track in an Olympic final. I mean, what, what, and maybe the question is absolutely nothing and, and actually you want absolutely nothing going through your mind. Yeah. A bit like a golfer doesn't want any swing thoughts. Yeah. You don't want any thoughts before, you're, uh, before you're, you know, the, the gun's about to go. But I'd just be curious as to whether you have an answer to that or not. No, do you know what? Um, I was just at the trials in Manchester, just the, the weekend gone, and I was talking to someone because we, we're watching uh, we're watching some of the races, and I was talking to someone who I see like every championship. She still she still works uh, for British Athletics, but I've seen her since I've been young, and she's still working there now. Now that I've retired, she's she's still going, and she goes, Christine, what is it like being out there? What is it like, really? What is it like? like standing on the side, because like, I see you all the time. And before you're about to go out to race, I see you. What is it like? And this is probably the first time I've really had to think about it. And you know what? It's terrifying. <laughs> I think I never would have admitted that when I was competing. But when I look back on it now, I can actually say it. I can actually say it's absolutely terrifying when you're waiting to yeah. go out and compete or you're in the cool room. Uh, it's, it's terrifying. Um, but you have to I mean, get on. You have to, you know. Especially, especially on the blocks in, uh, you know, yeah. at the Olympic Stadium in, 20, in 2012. Yes, I mean, no, I guess I because, because, because you were about to run an Olympic final, mm -hmm. you know, in, in your, literally your, your home borough. I mean, that would be like, you know, Johnny playing for Northern Ireland at Windsor Park. I mean, it would be like, <laughs> it would be, be that special. I mean, it's probably not yeah. even possible to try and put into words no, what that felt terrible. like on, on the blocks in, 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 London 2012 in your home borough yeah so but so as I said it's it's quite scary but because you know that and because I'm aware of that 
I have mechanisms to try and keep all that at bay. Yeah. So, but I think um, the initial reaction is that it's, it's like, it's, I don't like this one bit. <laughs> it's that feeling where you just don't know what to do with yourself. You don't know whether to sit, whether to stand. It's, it's, a, it's a worse singing because nobody's there to help you. And you're all, you know, you kind of leave you in a room with your competitors and you just, there's no one to talk to. You don't talk to the officials. You can't talk to these guys. You, you don't know what to do with yourself. It's terrifying, but you have to find ways to deal with that. And I think um, going into 2012, um, because I knew from way out that the games are going to be in London and going to be at home, I could start preparing um, long before the games actually started. So that's when I started doing work with my um, sports psychologist at the time, where we started trying to create like a, like a, like a bubble. Um, so I, I tried to almost dissociate from the actual games itself. Yeah. And it, I mean, um, it's actually a really powerful mental tool that we're able to create, but um, I almost feel in a way a, a bit, uh, a bit regretful in some respects because I never saw the games as everybody else saw it because I was too busy focusing on my job. So I never got yeah. to enjoy it. I didn't really go out. I wasn't, because I just knew that it would get to me too much. Um, yeah it would be too um, overwhelming. Um, I remember I phoned home on the night of the opening ceremony because we were in Portugal training and um, I couldn't watch the ceremony with everybody else because I was too choked up. Yeah. <laughs> and I called my mum in tears saying, can you believe this is Stratford? This is, this is a Stratford. This is, this is our town. This is just down the road from you. Can you actually believe we've done it? And I couldn't watch it with the team because I was just too overwhelmed. But so things like that, I had to really try and find ways to just try and keep myself um, sane, <laughs> try and stop myself from going um, kind of overflowing with emotions. I really had to shut everything down and just keep it very clinical, focus on the race, get to the stadium, get back, don't get too you know, caught up in a hysteria in London and all the performances just trying to shut everything down i i, I the room i i stayed with um middle distance uh athletes because <laughs> they're always out running so <laughs> you mostly have peace in the apartment so that's what i did to try and try and create an environment which was quite uh quiet and um steady in temperament i didn't want to keep fluctuating yeah. in excitement and stuff um but generally when you're on the start um when you're on the start line you want a like a clear mind you don't want anything you just want complete like when i say silence i mean your mind has to be completely silent safe for the things that you want to focus on you know yeah. maybe it might just be you know attack the first bend or yeah li literally it's just you're looking at um you're not looking at the whole plan of the 400 you just well for me you're just looking at what are you going to do when you get out of the blocks and then and then for the most part, your body just sinks into what it's supposed to get done. If you've trained well enough, your body will just kind of slip into the slipstream of training and running and racing. So for me, it's just getting over that first hump of getting out the blocks. Just get out the blocks and then everything will hopefully fall into place. <laughs> but that's usually what happens. I think the most terrifying thing is, is um, getting started. Once you get started, you do what you have to do. It's not you know, you're a competitor, you're an athlete, you've trained so hard for this. Your body is very, very good at um, getting, getting you to, to adapt and to kind of fill the race out as it's going along.
Yeah. It's interesting, Andrew mentioned at the start about, you know, everyone will talk about the the career highs, the medals, the fantastic achievements, the fact that you performed, you know, in those pressure moments of those major championships. But perhaps not everyone will appreciate that amongst all of those amazing moments and experiences, you had to overcome all of the setbacks, all of the disappointments, the injuries, the, the challenges along the way. And obviously every elite athlete, professional athlete has injuries and challenges and adversity to deal with. But um, it seems like your challenges were arguably maybe more more, more, more public facing. Um, more public facing, yeah. And I suppose the, the question is, did, did that make it... Well, so we, how, how did you cope with that? I mean, what was what was going through your head whenever dealing with you know very difficult um, challenges in your career were being talked about publicly in the media yeah. and by others in the sport? I mean, that must have been a very intrusive sort of time. Yeah. So I think um, probably my, I think my first um, adversity would have been I think injury is always something that crops up. That's always difficult to deal with because. Um, it's it's your job and you can't do your job. It's like somebody telling you, you know, you can't go to work every day, that kind of thing. So that's that kind of takes its mental toll. And I think for me, um, you know, I suppose of injury, it's something that came very early in my career because I remember I'd ruptured my Achilles tendons playing netball. So I kind of had an idea of of, of how to deal with that and how to process that. I think with the case that I had in 20, um, 20, 2006 with the, with the missed test, I think that was something that I probably was never prepared for. <laughs> That's not like an injury. Um, and as you, you're right, it was very, very public facing. Um, at the time, I think I was, I was about 22 years old at the time. Um, yeah. I graduated in 2005. So yeah, I would have been, um, that would have been my, so my first professional year in the sport. Um, so yeah, so I became a full-time athlete in 2005, 2006 was, so between 2005, 2006 was when uh, um, missed tests occurred. So I was very, very young in the sport. I was very, very young, um, I suppose, in, 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 in age. So I think possibly my understanding or naivety um, trying, I think it's hard trying to look back now with my <laughs> with 20 years well nearly 20 years on 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 those events but um no it's not 20 years is it that might be 42 it's my maths is not, sorry. <laughs> 14 years 14 years probably, probably feels like feels like 20 <laughs> <laughs> no it's yeah sorry my maths is up but um yeah, look, so I try not to look back with my eyes now because, you know, it's, I do think that at the time that I dealt with things as best as I could deal with them. But um, I think at that time it was, it was particularly difficult because there were so many um, misconceptions, of, number one, about the system we had in place. That was yeah. probably my biggest gripe because I thought if people understood the whereabouts system, understood the fact that it was a pilot, it was not um, one that we all... Um, could handle um, very, very well. I mean, on many athletes on missed tests, I was just the first one to get to three. 
And so I think that's probably the biggest problem that I had was that there's so many misconceptions and misinformation that was going around, the suggestions that I had even tried to take any performing house and drugs was something that was completely, um, it completely shocked me to the core. I think at the time, maybe it's my youth or naivety, but I thought, you know, I'll just explain what happened and then they will yeah. see my, they'll see my logs. I can, you know, I can, I can explain where I was and blah, blah, blah. And it'll, it'll, be, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I won't have anything to, to worry about, you know, it'll all go away. And I think my naivety was what um, probably not allowed me to take it, uh, take it as seriously as I did because I just thought, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's not a big deal. Um, but then it was a big deal and it didn't go away. It didn't go away. And I, and I had to find a lawyer and a barrister and um, we had to go to court. And then you have the, the, the headlines and the, and the papers and all these different stories. And I remember there was one journalist who did my journey from Stratford to Northwick Park where I was doing my gym session. And he's like, yeah, she could have got here in an hour and do this. I'm like, that's the point. <laughs> that was not how it happened. So... It was difficult. I don't really know how I dealt with that. I, I just, I do think if I had to go through that again, I probably, <laughs> I don't think I'll survive it. I, but I think at the time, um, um, I remember it happened in late, it happened August 2006. And then I had a double Achilles surgery on my, um, double Achilles surgery. I remember at the time my coach was saying, you know what, Chris, you know, you can't run anyway, so <laughs> you can't compete. So just get, get the, the operation. Get the operation. Yeah, get done. the operation done and then we'll see what will happen. And I said, you know, there's nothing to get an operation done because I don't even want to run anyway. I don't I don't want I don't want to be part of this sport. I think they're all they're all idiots. <laughs> Everybody's just, you know, being really, really um behaving unreasonably towards me. That nobody's listening, nobody's bothering to find out the correct facts. No matter what I say, nobody's paying any attention to, to, to my story. So I was very, very frustrated and angry at the time. And I said, I didn't want, want to be part of this sport. It's a stupid system anyway. <laughs> Making us sign in for an hour, you know. And this, I think now the system is a lot easier to deal with because um, everybody talks about it. Um, everyone says, have you done your whereabouts? Have you done your whereabouts? Have you done it? Everybody, it's a language that everybody is familiar with. But at the time... Nobody really kind of cared that much. It was like, okay, if you're there, you're there. If you're not, you're not. They, I don't think anybody really um, understood what the consequences were, or even if there were going to be any consequences. I think because possibly nobody thought that was ever going to happen, but it did happen. Um, so yeah, so because I had my um, I had my Achilles surgery, that almost just kept me focused on just rehabbing because I thought, well, let me just get my Achilles back to how they were before. I operated on them. I just want to get them back to just being able to walk on them sufficiently. And then whatever happens, whatever happens, I don't, I don't really care. I said to my coach, I actually don't care what happens after that. So that, that's kind of how I dealt with it. I almost just buried my head in the sand and then just um, focused on running. I didn't, you know, sorry, focused on rehabbing. I really wasn't interested in coming back to the sport. I didn't really, you know, I really just felt um, very much um, let down at the time. Do you think that experience and that, that period in your career, did that give you extra motivation? Not that you needed extra motivation, but did it give you like added mental strength to then sort of deal with, with, with other challenges later in your career? Do you think that was really sort of a really defining period? Yes and no. Um, I say no, because I think that really sometimes 
um, when stuff like that happens, it more just like, for me, it just exposes, it's like it just kind of cuts away stuff and you're left with just the bones of who you are, if you get what I mean. And yeah. I think it just made it very, very clear the kind of person I was and how I wanted to work. I don't think it, um, it probably made me a bit, 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 um, bit, not, um, I could say a bit hardened, a bit, bit colder. I really wasn't, um, very open to people anymore after that because you know I had a really really rough time I know I didn't really talk about it much because it was kind of really difficult period to go back to it wasn't just me that was affected it was my family I said you know I'm one of eight kids so it was something that really did affect everybody because nobody could understand why it was taken to the extent that it was and I think it's not so much saying that I should have been absolved from any kind of punishment that's not the case I think I was readily um accepting of the fact that I, I did break the rules and that was fine. But I just think it was more the response to that I think was completely unwarranted. Um, I don't think people have made any, um, any effort to understand what was really happening. And that was very frustrating. And then you had, I just think that people should have just known better and behaved better, but that's by the by. Um, so I don't think it would really change me in, in that sense where I became you know, I've been really mentally tough or anything. I just, I just kind of stopped caring, to be honest. Maybe that was a good thing. I think it probably stopped yeah. me from being too concerned about the small stuff because you realise that, you know, when, excuse my French, when shit hits the fan, um, yeah. <laughs> um, you, you really kind of, you, you don't really have much else to rely on, but you kind of yourself and your own resources. So, um, yeah, but, you know, but at the same time, I didn't want to become a bitter person. I didn't want to become an angry person. I didn't want to become a person who was um, not me. I still yeah. like the fact that I was still quite, you know, young and new to the sport. I still wanted to keep that um, almost naivety and freshness about me. I didn't want to become a bitter athlete who was going to slag everybody off at a moment's notice. I didn't want to be that person. And I think the great thing about my family setup is that I do have loads of loads of kids around me. And because I was one of the oldest, I had to really try and set a responsible image for them. And I just thought if something has gone wrong, as, as it has gone wrong, you don't have to respond by, you know, fire. You don't have to, you don't have to fight fire with fire. So my, my response was really just to try and take the high road, focus on what I could and the bits that I couldn't do. I just, I just left it alone. So it's, it's weird. It was a weird, bag of emotions and I really did try hard to try and control what I could control and then leave yeah. the bits that you know weren't going to <laughs> bend <laughs> bend to my will I had to leave those bits alone so it was a great exercise in in kind of mental um I suppose mental adaptation I would say but I don't think it really made me um I think it really just exposed what I was I think it was um you know, I think it's quite, uh, it was, it's quite helpful growing up uh, in a family with, you know, many brothers. <laughs> you learn to fight for yourself. You know, I don't, I think people don't really see that when they see me, but you learn to, yeah. you know, you have to stand on your own two feet and defend yourself when you have to, but it's not really, um, it's not really a, a tool that I've had to use often. But I think in that moment, I really had to learn to bring out those tools of just standing up on your two feet and, and, and fighting for yourself. It's, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you say obviously you didn't 
get angry or bitter about it. And I think that's a huge credit to you because I remember that at the time. And I remember you, you were essentially targeted without context because the context is that it actually wasn't a missed test. They were random. It's not actually possible to miss a test oh, yeah. in respect of the whereabouts structure. And, and, and that was that was the first misconception. Yeah. You identified it earlier. It was also a pilot scheme. Mm-hmm. Which was which was which was pretty much solely um, restricted to to you know the jurisdiction, if if you will, that you were in at the time. You were twenty one years old, and and I, I think you know when you look at say other athletes in the way the way Raheem Sterling was targeted in the media two or three years ago, I almost um, consider it to be not the similar to that. I mean, he was he was targeted for for for. I guess matters almost unrelated to and unconnected to his his sport, um, mm. and you know when you look back now, I mean, I mean to me that seems you know clear as day what happened because it lacked that context. The, the press mm. reporting of it lacked context. Yeah, the press reporting I think was probably the thing that was really getting to me because I think nobody I was not denying any of the facts that took place. That was not the issue. I was very. I was very keen to, to, to express to um, UK Doping at the time, British Athletics, anybody who would listen really what the facts were and how yeah. I did manage to miss random tests. Um, <laughs> um, and I was very clear on that. So it wasn't, those were, those were never in dispute. It wasn't really the issue. I think the issue I had was just how it was presented. And, you know, for, for you know, presentation is everything. How you decide to you know, put the words on the, on the page, um, down to the imagery you use, all those things have an effect. Yeah. And I just didn't yeah. think they were doing, I'm not saying they should have just said, oh, you know, let her up. I'm not, I wasn't saying that at all. I was just saying, be reasonable in how you're deciding to put up these articles. And that was what really bothered me. I think there was one, I mean, they were really, really distasteful, all of them. All of them were really distasteful. I remember there was one that really got my mum very upset and she actually called the journalist. She called him up. I don't know how she got hold of him. She called him up. And I was surprised because I didn't think she would do that. But I think she was just so aggrieved by everything. And everybody was. And she told him off. He said, you know what? Your reporting is not right. It's wrong. And she explained everything to him. And he's like, oh, oh, okay. And then I think um, he said, oh, well, you, you know, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, he apologized. But that's kind of, I suppose that's how the media works. And he's even finding that because I remember my brother met the same journalist at sports personality and I think he gave him the journalist gave my brother his card so um I think at that point you realize that people are just it's just it's just, it's just a story to them and I yeah, understand yeah. it because I suppose that's what puts bread on their table but um I, I don't know I, I would just say just be be mindful of how you can destroy people they're lucky that I wasn't somebody who was you know fragile or whatever you know I'm, I'm lucky that I was able to stand on my own feet and defend myself because you can really create a lot of problems by um, targeting people in that way. I really didn't think it was, it was fair or right. I, I, was ne- I never said that I was, I was, you know, not guilty of breaking the rules, but I think my only issue was how they were presenting it. And, and it was just the, um, the suggestion. And I think that's all you need sometimes, the suggestion yeah. that you're lacking in, in, in integrity or you're not who you say you are. That was what got it for me because I know I've, you know, I've played sport my whole life. I've, you know, I've take, I took myself to training. I've, 
my parents weren't always there in the early part of my career. I did all the lap myself because I loved my sport, not because I ever wanted to win medals or I wanted to be rich or famous. I did it probably because I loved my sport. So to have somebody attack you at your core where you know that was my strongest, you know, that was my strongest, my integrity for sport was something that was really difficult to, to um, it was really difficult to, to accept. And, and it does, you know, it really does eat away. I think even at this time now, I really do struggle to, <laughs> probably to forgive that part of my life because I just think it was really uncalled for. Thanks for listening to the Sheridan Sport Backpage podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Sheridan Sport and also subscribe to our Backpage blogs and previous podcast episodes. You can also share ideas and connect with us individually on Twitter and LinkedIn. Feel free to get in touch with one of the team, Andrew, Dan, Chris, Johnny, Alex, Sarah, Ryan and Elle. Finally, the Backpage podcast is powered by Milestone, a mental health charity aimed at tackling setbacks through sport and in turn helping to normalise the conversation around mental health. To learn more about Milestone and its aims and how you can get involved, visit teammilestone.co.uk or check them out on Instagram at milestone.uk or Twitter at milestone underscore UK. Thanks for listening.